I'm going to add my welcome to Richards. Uh, I've always been puzzled, not just in general, <laughs> but I've uh, always been puzzled uh, by the Easter Bunny. Uh, of all the sort of weird traditions that we have, the Easter Bunny uh, must be up there as one of the strangest. Because if you think about it, the Easter Bunny has no backstory. You know, we don't know where he came from, we don't know where he lives, what he does the rest of the year. I mean, with Santa, you know, we've got the whole Saint Nick thing with the North Pole and the elves, and the Easter Bunny, nothing. He's famous for bringing eggs, but rabbits, as far as I know, I'm not a biologist, <laughs> rabbits, as far as I know, don't lay eggs. So really, it should be chicken, shouldn't it? It should be the Easter chicken uh, that we're talking about, because, well, eggs, that's more to do with, with them. But even eggs, what do they really have to do with Easter? Because we get eggs all the year round, don't we? And rabbits really have not all that much to do with Easter, apart from about this time of year, they tend to have lots more rabbits, uh, little bunnies running around. But there is an animal which is much better associated with Easter, a lamb. And more than just a lamb, the Passover lamb. You see, Easter actually has a much longer history and a richer history than the Easter Bunny. It has its roots in a festival that began and was instituted by God over 3,000 years ago. A festival that's pretty much been celebrated by Jewish people across the globe for pretty much all that time. And the story of Easter begins with the story of Passover. That's what we had that verse read, that chapter read to us before. Actually, Easter begins with Passover. And indeed, if you've ever wondered why Easter jumps around so much... It's actually to keep it in line with the Jewish calendar, which depends on the basis of the moon. Passover is always on a full moon, we'll see why uh, later on. And the events of Easter happen at the time of Passover. And that was deliberate on God's part, as we'll see. The two are intricately linked together. So this morning, we're actually continuing a series that we've been doing in Exodus, and it just so happened, I don't know, I planned it actually... (laughs) But it just so happens that as we celebrate Easter, we're going to be looking at Passover. Chapter 11 that we have read catches us up on the story. We're at the end of the plagues. The last one is to come. Pharaoh has his final warning. And this probably means chapter 11 in time, in the timeline, we're speaking just before chapter 10. There's the plague of darkness and then this one comes next. The final plague. The final strike to Egypt so that Pharaoh will let God's people go. Egypt will be decimated as God himself comes down, but the children of Israel will be spared. God will kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Now that might seem a little bit strange, but chapter 12 tells us how, and it tells us why. So first of all, it's all to do with a lamb slain. Let me read to you at chapter 12 and verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for their household. And if there is a household too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbour shall take according to the number of persons, according to what you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without a blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it with haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Right at the centre of all that's going on is a lamb. A lamb that will be slain. Perhaps the fact that the lamb is slain is one of those reasons why it's not a popular image of the Easter bunny. It's not a particularly nice image, is it, uh, for this time of year. But we're told a few details about the lamb. We're told that it's to be a year old. So born the spring before, in the prime of life, in other words. It's to have no blemishes. It's not to be lame or sick or have any obvious imperfections. There is to be no broken bones. All the bones are to remain intact. We find that out at the end in verse 46. They were to choose it on the 10th of the month and then keep it until the 14th. Now some people think that basically they would take it into their home and sort of have it like a pet for four days. They sort of look after it and have it as part of their family. To sort of give it residency in the home, if you like. And it could either be a lamb or a kid, as in the young of a goat, not as in a child. But apparently, sheep and goats at that age are quite hard to tell apart. They're very uh, close together. You can only tell, apparently, by the tail uh, that they're different. And then on the twilight of the 14th of the month, they had to kill it. And the blood from the lamb was to be collected and then applied to the doorposts of the house. And it was to be a message, a sign. A death has already taken place here. That's what it said. Pass over this house. A member of this house has already died. The Passover lamb, you see, was to die instead of the firstborn son of the house. Its death was to be instead of that person. Its death was to be a substitute for somebody else. Now, to talk about substitutions, I always used to talk about football. But to be honest with you, I don't really know a lot about football, so it always seems a little bit weird for me to do football illustrations. And I'm secure enough with my masculinity this morning that I'm ditching football. I'm going to talk about shopping uh, instead. <laughs> not that I suddenly realised how that's... Just as another subject, you know. Um, but nowadays, nowadays, when you get a delivery order... Uh, from the supermarket, and they send it through. You get substitutions, don't you? Uh, we do at our house. Uh, in our house, we once had pink lady apples sent instead of a set of bowls. Apples instead of bowls. Uh, our delivery driver told us that somebody wanted lemonade, but he got sent uh, lemon-scented bleach. Really not the same thing. You don't want to get those two mixed up, do you? Now, they are bad substitutions, aren't they? But a substitute is something or someone that replaces somebody else. It's a stand-in, a swap. And God instructed Moses that a Passover lamb was an acceptable substitute, an acceptable swap, an acceptable replacement for the firstborn son of the house. So the lamb's blood was there instead of the son's blood. 
And the blood applied to the doorpost was to be a sign that that death had already taken place. And that house then became a little refuge for those inside, like a mini Noah's Ark, safe inside while death and destruction lies outside. And like Noah's Ark, actually, this is God's doing, isn't it? He sent the flood to destroy the world, that was him coming. And he's the one who sends the destroyer, in verse 23, to destroy. But notice, in this whole thing, that actually the Israelites would have been included unless there was blood on the door. As we saw last week, the Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. They were hard-hearted and sinful as well. We're going to see that as we go into the wilderness. The implication is, if the blood is not on the door, the destroyer would destroy them too. God would pour out his wrath on them as well. The only difference here is the blood on the door. The means of escape that God had provided for his people was that blood. No blood on the door, no safety in the house. And it's the same as we move across from this picture to the New Testament. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Referring back to that picture of the Lamb. In a book called 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, he writes, Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover Lamb, that's what the New Testament says. He is our substitute. His blood was shed instead of ours. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took God's wrath in our place. God brings the wrath, but again, God provides the escape, Christ. But like with the Passover lamb, it's not enough that the lamb was slain. I'll say that again. It's not enough that the lamb was slain. That's not enough to save them. The blood had to be applied on the door. No blood on the door, no safety in the house. And the same is true when we come to Jesus. It's not enough that Jesus died as a sacrifice at Easter time. That sacrifice needs to be applied. Now don't hear me wrong. The blood of Jesus that was shed is sufficient for all sin. It is powerful. But unless it is applied to the doorposts of our hearts and minds, it will do us no good. Nothing. Nada. Zero. The sacrifice that Christ made must be received through faith. We must actively put our trust in him and his sacrifice. Faith, if you like, is the paintbrush or the hyssop branch that applies the blood of Christ to our hearts. It's the blood that does the work, the sacrifice that saves, but without faith and trust in that blood, it saves no one. So as you think about your, your door, if you like, don't hang your awards and trophies on your door. Don't hang your merit badges or signs saying, I'm a good person, really. None of those will work. Only the blood of Christ applied by faith will do. Only the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost will work. And that's what they're to do. And God uses it. So secondly, a lamb slain to rescue a people. Let me read to you chapter 12, verses 29 to 36. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Go up from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, if you have said, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This event is the event that leads to the Israelites' rescue from Egypt. What frogs and flies and gnats and hail fail to achieve, the final plague achieves. The firstborn of Egypt are killed from the greatest to the least, and God's wrath is again expressed in the death of the firstborn, as we've seen earlier on in the series. And Pharaoh lets the people go. The women, the men, the children, the cattle, they are told to go. Go and serve the Lord. Go worship the Lord. Do you notice Pharaoh now adds, bless me. He's gone from the arrogant, I do not know the Lord, to please mention me when you go and worship. Now it's probable that he sent this message via a messenger. Pharaoh had said that he would never see Moses' face again, and Moses agreed. There's no conversation here, is there, like in the other plagues? It's just a command to go. And the Egyptians were keen to get rid of them. They asked them for gold and silver jewellery, and they get it. And that's prophesied not just earlier in Exodus, but all the way back in Genesis, when God speaks to Abraham. In Genesis 15, this is what God says to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will uh, will be their servants there, and be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. God had even got those details planned half a millennium in advance. They plundered the Egyptians without raising a sword, without a shot being fired, so to speak. Because normally, if you think about it, plundering is done by a conquering power. But here there's been no battle. And the Egyptians give their riches willingly. And the journey begins. The rescue begins in earnest in verses 37 to 42. There's an active phase as the people begin to move. And we're told that 600,000 men, plus women and children, uh, are on the move. That's probably well over 2 million people. Now, critics have said for years this is too many people. But there was more than enough time in 430 years for them to reach that size. For us, that would be like going back to the time of Elizabeth I. That's the sort of period we're dealing with. And especially if they had families that were as big as Jacob's with his 12 boys. Equally, big people movements of this size are not unheard of in history. Egyptian historians themselves record that the Hyksos people moved out of Egypt, and they numbered at least a quarter of a million, probably more, uh, a bit earlier on. Now, some people think that those are the Israelites. I think on balance they're not, but it certainly sets a precedent for that kind of movement happening with a big number. Now, some suggest that the number is read back from the number of the Israelites in the time of David. But later on in Exodus, they'll be counted in their different tribes, and they'll add up to the same number. There may be some legitimate rounding up, but this is presented as a real number. 
And they moved together from Ramesses to Sukkot. So it's not a very far journey, that's just the top of, of Egypt where they're going. We're told that others go with them, not just Israelites. They were the only slaves in Egypt who were escaping at this time. And they take their unleavened bread with them as they are leaving in the early hours of the morning. I've been doing a bit of bread making recently, that's, I've been trying to take it on as a hobby. Uh, and I know that you have to leave your bread to prove. But there was no proving here. They just uh, set their cook to rapid dough and, and did it that way, no yeast. And in all, by the time that they leave, they've been in Egypt for 430 years. And God brings them out at just the right time. The first full moon of their new year. And a full moon, if you think about it, would have helped them to keep watch in the night. The same would have been true for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the disciples to watch with him. That's what they're doing. But they weren't the only ones keeping watch that night. Have a look at verse 42, if you've got your Bible there. It says, It was a night for watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What it's saying there is that God has not been asleep. God is wide awake here, watching over them, keeping them safe as they leave. God is rescuing his people. And like a shepherd, he's counting them safely uh, out of the fold on their way to Egypt, watching them as they begin their journey by night. But the goal wasn't just to get them out, wasn't just to rescue We'll see actually in our final point that God is rescuing them to give them a fresh start. Let me go back and read 14 uh, to 20. This day shall be to you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy uh, assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat some leavened bread until the twenty-first day of the first, first month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether it is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So we see here that uh, the rescue wasn't the only thing that was going on that night, and the lamb wasn't the only thing that was going on. Before he's even rescued them... He tells them how they're going to remember being rescued. That's how certain this event is. So how are they going to remember this? Well, they get a two-in-one festival. Uh, one a week long, one just a day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is that week-long festival. And it's also called Passover, but that's really just the first day uh, of that festival. After the slaughter of the lamb, for seven days, they were not allowed to eat anything with leaven in it. Now, I've always found that a little bit strange. Leaven, we sort of think of as yeast now. And I always wonder, is there something fundamentally wrong with yeast? You know, should we be picketing bakeries? Uh, should we not have Marmite 
uh, on our Sunday evening toast and training. I would be all up for not having Marmite, personally. <laughs> I don't want to start a church stress <laughs> with that. But uh, is there something wrong with it? And why is it okay for the rest of the year, but not okay for that one week? I think the problem is that we're seeing this through 21st century eyes. So when I've been doing my bread making, I get my yeast in a little packet. Uh, that's where it comes. But we don't really know what leaven is. Leaven, as it speaks of there, is dough that's left over from the last batch. It's what we call now a sourdough starter. I think I just heard someone say that. It's like a sourdough starter. That's the posh word for it. But really it's just leaven. There was no yeast in those days. There was just old dough. Apparently they occasionally used to use beer sort of froth. But they didn't really know exactly what they were doing. But once a year, God is saying, get rid of your old dough and start anew. It was a fresh start for the people, a new beginning. And that's backed up by its position in the year. In verses 1 and 2, we were told that this is a new year to begin. These events were so huge that they reset the calendar. And every year, this is how they were to begin their year. Clearing out the old and bringing in the new. The festival was a reminder of a fresh start. The fresh start that God had given them. The new beginning as a nation. They were to remember the Passover with their special meal, and then they were to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread throughout all their generations. So the week-long thing was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But on the day, they were to eat of the flesh of the lamb, the Passover, the lamb that had been slain. So the lamb was not just their substitute. Actually, the lamb was their sustenance as well, as they began their journey. They had a long journey ahead of them, but the lamb that was slain is the food that was given to them to keep them going on that journey. It was to be roasted, that's the quickest way to cook it, a reminder that they were to go in haste. And it was attached to that little refuge that they were in for that night. They couldn't eat it outside that place, and none of it must remain until morning. They were to eat it with bitter herbs, possibly to remind them of the bitterness of the slavery that they'd been in. And they were to do this every year as a reminder of this sacrifice, an annual reminder of a rescue and a fresh start. And we see here that only God's people could eat it. If you wanted to eat it, you see elsewhere, you needed to become part of God's people. Only God's people could eat it, but all God's people must eat it. So there weren't people who were to skip it. If they were to skip this meal, they were to be cut off from the people. Now I think that has implications for the Lord's Supper, for bread and wine, which is based on Passover. We're going to be looking a little bit more at the links between that uh, tonight. But here we see that blood was shed for them so that they could have a fresh start. That was the big point. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover are there to remind them of that. All instituted before it even happened. But it's no different for the people of God now. It's the same for us, isn't it? Blood was shed so that we could have a fresh start. That's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians, here's the whole verse of what I read earlier, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What he's saying there is that the lamb has been sacrificed. We've been saved if we're trusting in Jesus. And now then is the time to cleanse out that old leaven. We're not old lumps of dough anymore, we're new lumps. If you like, it sounds a bit strange, isn't it? New lumps. But that's what we are. New lumps that are unleavened. 
Christ has cleansed us, made us new. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what is the leaven that it's talking about there? Well, the leaven is our old way of life, our old way of thinking. So the very next verse in Corinthians says this, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So if you're a believer this morning, in one sense, you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread every day. As you leave behind your old ways of evil and malice and put on sincerity and truth. As you live out your unleavenedness, if you like. If you're not a believer this morning, I think the message is, well, don't you want a fresh start? A new beginning? A clean slate? Freedom from the things that oppress you? That's what's offered to us in the events of Easter, in the imagery of Passover. But you can't celebrate the feast until the lamb has been killed and the blood is on the doorposts. In other words, the only way to have a fresh start is to be rescued first. Trying to get rid of your old leaven, trying to sort out your own life before you come to Jesus, is not only futile and fruitless, it's just the wrong way round. The rescue comes first. Only then must the leaven go. So there might be some here this morning thinking, well, I could never be a Christian. I'm not good enough. My life is full of mess and I've failed too badly. But God does not ask us to clean ourselves up first and then come to him. He asks us to come to him so that he can clean us up. The rescue comes before the refining process. If you wait until you feel good enough for God, you'll never get there. And if you think that you're there, and you do feel good enough for God, then something's gone wrong too. Because none of us is good enough. The answer is to come as you are. The Lamb of God has been slain. So come now, paint the blood of Jesus on your heart with a paintbrush of faith. The Easter Bunny is a great bit of fun, isn't it? That the Easter Bunny won't die for you. But Easter shows us that the true, ultimate Passover lamb has been slain. The lamb, Christ, has been slain to rescue a people, all who trust in him, and to give us a fresh start. Will you take advantage of that fresh start this morning? Amen. Well, Easter Sunday reminds us that the lamb who was slain is now risen, and that now he's reigning in heaven. This is from the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and they will reign forever.